Hi everyone and welcome to the ADEA podcast series presenting a number of topics identified by you, the members of the Australian Diabetes Educators Association. The ADEA podcast series highlights latest updates and research in the areas that are relevant to best practice in diabetes management, diabetes care and diabetes education. My name's Jan Alford, a long-time member of ADEA, and I will be your host. Today we'll be discussing the role of metabolic surgery in people with diabetes with Dr. George Hopkins, a gastrointestinal and weight loss surgeon at both Royal Brisbane Hospital and Northside Private Hospital. Hello there, Dr. Hopkins, and thank you for your time today. Good afternoon, Jan, and thank you for having me. Uh, I'd like to start this, first, this session by asking the first question, if I might. There's no doubt that metabolic surgery has been shown to be effective in people with diabetes. But having said that, I wonder if you could describe for us the criteria for selecting people for this type of surgery. Thanks, Jen. Um, that is probably the best place to start um, a conversation about surgery and diabetes. I would like to mention that as a, um, a surgeon, often we're not sort of thought of as any form of first tier treatment option in diabetes. And as a principle in surgery, we always like to consider that we exhaust conservative management before we take on surgical management. And, and that particularly applies in this setting um, because all surgery has to be balanced against its risk. So in terms of metabolic management, Certainly even the word metabolic surgery, Jan, is relatively new. Our um, Obesity Surgery Society, in fact, just a month ago has changed its name to become the Obesity and Metabolic Surgery Society of Australia and New Zealand as it's starting to be acknowledged that the weight loss is a component of the success, but there's the metabolic effect directly of the surgery. Um, so it's now being referred to as your question outlined as um, metabolic and weight loss surgery. Now going to the specifics of your question, the criteria for selecting um, patients for surgery. So I suppose the first way to put it is that there are both patient factors and there are surgeon factors. I put it that way because this is elective surgery. And in many ways, one of the criteria, if you like, is that the patient wants the surgery. I know that sounds fairly self-evident, but there are a lot of people who are candidates for the surgery that would fulfill our usual criteria, but they are not eligible because they don't want the surgery because they're not prepared for the risk. Um, it's not the same as, say, trialing a medication for diabetes, to give you a, an obvious example. You know, we trial this medication for a period of time. If it doesn't work, if the side effects are worse than the positives, we stop it and we try another medication. Surgical intervention is, as a rule, a fairly irreversible step um, with a certain number of um, percentage risks that have to be factored into. And I always 
I mean, my first statement to every patient that I meet is my job is not to talk you into having this surgery because I think it's a good idea. You have to have this surgery because you think it's a good idea and that balanced information, meaning you've been given the positives and you've been given the negatives and on balance you decide that you would like to have the surgery. So the first criteria, if you like, is actually patient-related. How determined are they? How aware are they? And what is their acceptance of this risk profile? Because as I say, it's a fairly one-way street um, surgical intervention. Um, you can't wish you hadn't had it done and go back. Um, so I put it clearly to you that patient selection starts with a, a certain amount of self-selection. That said, very few people sit in front of me and say, you know, I've never really thought about it before. I'm wondering a little bit about surgery. Usually by the time they sit in front of the surgeon, Jan, they are very well informed. They are quite exhausted from their, usually the best description I've got is failed medical management. Um, and they've usually um, informed themselves through the wonderful internet of the various negative uh, components, the complications, the downsides. Um, they've become very aware of both the pluses and the minuses of surgical intervention. So we are actually dealing with usually a fairly well-informed cohort of people. Um, now to give you some slightly more specific answers, um, in metabolic and weight loss surgery there are of course set criteria. Um, the set criteria are changing with time. Um, certainly it used to be a BMI over 40 um, with comorbidities associated with obesity such as diabetes. Those numbers have come down a little bit. Certainly in Australia now it's 35 and over um, BMI and now with the improved safety profile of the surgery and with the emerging outcome data suggesting the benefits of the surgery in the diabetic setting, we're now looking at doing patients with BMIs 31 to 34 with significant comorbidity issues such as poorly controlled type 2 diabetes. Um, um, I saw a lady not a half an hour ago, Jan, who was exactly that description. She was only 79 kilograms, but a very difficult to manage um, type 2 insulin dependent diabetic. And in short, her endocrinologist had referred her for consideration of gastric bypass surgery. So the essence of the selection criteria are obviously scientific and rigid, but that said, they are constantly moving. Um, as new evidence emerges about the safety profile and the efficacy of the, the metabolic intervention. Um, I wonder if you could comment on the outcomes for the various procedures that are available for people with diabetes. And obviously the, the, the selection of procedure has, has changed as well in my time in working in the area. Yeah. So I wonder if you could comment on what the overall outcomes are at the moment. Yes. Look, certainly in Australia at the moment, Jan, there are three procedures which are um, prominent. But as you just described, in my period, which is 
um, 17 years in the weight loss surgical industry, um, it, it has changed the scenery, and I, I suspect that you know it will continue to change because that's just the nature of the beast. Um, certainly, uh, 15 and 12 years ago, as you would be aware, the gastric band was the newest player on the block. Historically, um, there was a procedure called the vertical banded gastroplasty. People would often remember the um, acronym VBG. So in the 70s and 80s and even into the 90s, there were a variety of stapled procedures um, which involved proximal gastric tightening and restriction. Um, these were open procedures. They were probably good procedures when they were done well, but they were done in a myriad of fashions is my understanding of the history. And essentially, when gastric banding came along, it came along with the advent of laparoscopy. So suddenly we had keyhole surgery together with a procedure that didn't involve stapling of the stomach, and it became a very popular procedure both with the patients and, to be honest, with the surgeons and the hospitals because it was so safe. Now, the initial weight loss outcomes with the band and to that end, the diabetic outcomes with the band were very positive, and that's why um, it became incredibly popular and really re-established weight loss surgery as a, a specialty in and of itself, rather than just a branch of general surgery, which it very much now is a subspecialty in itself. But over the years, to my way of reckoning, and look, there is some ongoing dispute about this, but the band which represented probably 95% of procedures done in this country a decade ago, now represents ballpark about one in 10. So there's been a complete reversal, and a lot of the switch has been to the sleeve gastrectomy. Now, the sleeve gastrectomy is a more aggressive procedure where nine-tenths of the stomach are removed. Now, just to give you the ballpark difference between the two, they're both done with the keyhole. They're both get you out of hospital in a fairly short period of time. The band weight loss outcomes, however, were quite varied in the literature and ranged between 40 and 50% of excess body weight. The sleeve was a more consistent weight loss and, as a rule, a higher weight loss. The percentage of weight loss recorded after the sleeve in the first two to three years was in the vicinity of 65 to 75% of excess weight loss. And it was more reliable weight loss. In other words, there weren't extremes. Everybody did moderately well. In the band, the problem would be that it was unreliable. Some people would do pretty poorly and some people would do very well. And then ultimately, the revision nature of the band became a sticking point as well. In other words, being a prosthetic device, the requirement for further surgery, replacing, removing, repositioning became, uh, to a lot of us, a little bit cumbersome um, and became not worth the yield, um, not worth the investment, and that's what tended to, to, to move the focus to the sleeve gastrectomy where the outcomes were more reliable and there was certainly a lot less of a focus on the revisional surgery nature. Now, I want to mention also the gastric bypass because the gastric bypass was actually the original procedure back with the VBG, obviously done openly, but the gastric bypass has always been in the textbooks the gold standard weight loss operation. In short, Jan, that's where 
using the same staple guns that we use for a sleeve, but ra rather than remove any stomach, we detach the proximal stomach, um, leaving a volume of about 20 to 30 mils. If you can imagine perhaps two matchboxes placed end to end at the top of the stomach, and we make a little rectangle of stomach, usually keeping it long and narrow because it's the the, the, the lesser side, the right side of the stomach that behaves very differently to the to the left side of the stomach. The stomach only expands in one direction. That's what the principle of all these procedures is to just to keep the right side or what we call the, the lesser side of the stomach um, involved in the pouch. We make a small pouch and then we maintain continuity by bringing up a, a loop of small bowel which is anastomosed to that little pouch. Now, as I said, the, the bypass has been considered our gold standard against which the others should be compared. The unique component of the bypass was exactly that, that you missed the top of the gut, meaning the distal stomach, the duodenum, and into the small bowel. So there is believed to be a number of mechanisms associated with foodstuffs missing the top of the um, what we call the pancreaticoduodenal axis, which is specifically quite beneficial in the insulin response to foodstuffs. So, um, look, it's probably a little bit outside my purview of expertise, Jan, but suffice to say that still the literature is being contributed to that the bypass is probably still the best metabolic operation. A number of different studies which have compared simply the diabetic response to surgery um, seems to consistently show that a gastric bypass will afford a better diabetic response than a sleeve gastrectomy. The weight loss is seemingly similar up to about two to three years, but I think, and again this is level five evidence, my gut feeling, is that the bypass will maintain a better weight loss profile as the years unfold. My biggest fear for the sleeve gastrectomy is that there will be um, what we're already starting to see, an element of weight regain that we won't see in the gastric bypass. So there are three dominant procedures and that's kind of how it's evolved over the last decade and a half so that now the bypass and the sleeve are the most dominant procedures. I would add also that there's a lot of work being done on the endoscopic options. A lot of your members would be aware of um, something as simply put as the intragastric balloon that has um, been around for a couple of decades. Um, it's a mechanism which is relatively obvious. You put in a large gastric filling device and leave people with a feeling of fullness. But there's been a variety of new additions on the endoscopic front. Um, the biggest problem with all the endoscopic interventions is probably its durability because you know the stomach is uh, a bag of hydrochloric acid and any foreign body exposed to that environment has a limited lifespan. Um, my feeling on intragastric options at the moment is that it's likely to be an option where surgery doesn't apply or shouldn't apply or potentially um, where it's used as a step into surgery. So the endoscopic options include even what they refer to as ESG, which is a, um, a longitudinal endoscopic suturing of the stomach to create a so-called endoscopic sleeve compartment where we separate the, 
greater body of the stomach from the lesser curve, but with an endoscopic suture. Now, again, I would ask the members not to get too excited by these developments yet, because they really are in their infancy, both in terms of the technological um, performance as well as the outcome data. It's pretty limited at the moment, but any conversation regarding new and emerging has to include a lot of work that's being done on the endoscopic front. But that, that, that's an overall uh, view of what's currently available in Australia today. Thank you for that. My next question, I guess, is really the $64,000 question, and I guess you've touched on it a little bit, but yep. what do you think are the long-term success rates in terms of maintaining weight loss in people with diabetes? And I guess the second part that I'd add to that is what what would how can those success rates be improved? Because obviously the, the various techniques are improving at the same time. Yep. And look, we have to be very careful when we discuss longer term outcomes because just about all of us, despite our very best efforts, do have a constant attrition rate of patients. In other words, when you look at sort of some 10-year data, you look closely at the bottom and you realise that they've actually only got 30% of their patients that they've followed up for 10 years. So the follow-up data is almost by definition um, a little bit hard to interpret because it tends to be low. So I suppose the first and key message of a successful long-term procedure is maintaining the follow-up. Um, we have to essentially assume that if someone's not being followed up that they're not doing very well. But the key to long-term success and that is long-term follow-up and that's why the construction of what we call our multidisciplinary clinics, which is the, the obvious it word, now called integrated health, but a surgeon working by himself, herself, is going to provide very limited long-term success because every procedure that we've got has to be associated with a dramatic change in the patient's behaviour and associated medical supervision. Fifteen years ago, I suppose the debate was, you know, we don't need surgery, we just need allied health, or we don't need allied health, we just need surgery. And it turns out we've probably now all agreed that we need both that there is very little long-term success with surgery unless it is followed up by people determined to aid these patients to make the most of their weight loss surgery. So what I say to every patient at the one-year mark is, you know, that you've lost the weight is almost the easy part. Now you have to maintain the weight loss. And that is not necessarily a surgical success. When people lose weight following a sleeve gastrectomy, what we know about the speed gastrectomy is that with time, it's going to become more compliant, which is essentially to say larger. Um, some of the initial um, metabolic effects like anorexia and the early satiety, they do reduce with time. So the first one to two years are very predictable in your surgical in your physiological response to the surgery, but it becomes less predictable with time and less effective with time. So every patient needs to understand that the surgery helps bring their weight down, but it's the allied health team around, or integrated health as we call it now, around the surgical patient that enables long-term success. The 
answer to your question is that it, it keeps moving a little bit because we change our techniques and sometimes we look at medium-term data and say, well, that's not so good, so let's change our technique and then we have to look again in two to three years to see how that data looks and whether we need to further change. Um, suffice to say, some procedures don't, don't withstand the test of time. And as scientists, we have to look at data sets and say, well, clearly that only works for a period of time and then it doesn't work, so I'm not sure that's um, a reasonable standard of care. And that can be applied to any interventional procedure for weight loss. It has to be effective, it has to be safe, and it has to be durable. Um, to give you the picture, um, later on this year, our obesity society, surgical society, is having our first ever meeting with our medical obesity society, the ANZOS. And that's a really big step forward for both of us, I think, to acknowledge that uh, one needs the other. Um, with some of the newer emerging medical options, such as Succenda, um, the injectable Oh, GLP-1 agonist, I think it is. Um, uh, not, again, not exactly my expertise, but um, I now have that available in my clinic through an endocrine physician because potentially medical intervention in the bariatric surgical patient as the years roll by is going to be not just occasionally required but could almost become part of the algorithm, I suspect, that every patient may need ongoing specialist intervention. We have to get people to understand that this is a chronic disease. We don't cure it, we manage it. And the surgical intervention is just a major step forward in the management of an ongoing chronic condition. Um, and that that needs both surgeons, allied health, integrated health, um, which includes psychology and exercise physiology, together with specialist interested physicians who one, understand the surgery, and two, understand the best medical options. So that's why this meeting this year, Jan, is so important um, that we're finally acknowledging that the surgeons need the physicians and the physicians need the surgeons. Kind of been dancing separately for too long and everybody I think now really is on the same page. I was recently at an endocrine meeting where I was introduced in such a way that um, I, I acknowledge that it was different to an introduction from a decade ago where people would introduce the surgeon and sort of imply that, you know, on rare and unusual occasions, your patients might require this. It was now considered anyone who understands anything about obesity management understands the role of surgery. And to update us on the role of surgery, here is Dr. Hopkins, rather than let's debate whether there is any role for surgery. There is no longer that debate even in the endocrine faculty about whether or not we operate. It's simply a case of who do we operate on and when and how do we deal with it after that. So the surgeons are acknowledging that we don't have good prospects of long-term success without team management, which includes medical and integrated health. And similarly, the medical and integrated health are acknowledging that um, simple behavioural modification in the obese and the super obese is very unlikely to achieve significant results. Does that sound okay? As that a, sounds absolutely. I'm delighted to hear that surgeons and medical folk are finally getting to dance on the same page. I've been in diabetes mm -hmm. a very long time and it's lovely to hear that that's happening. 
and thank you for that. That was actually the last of the questions I had yeah. for you. But I think in, to some extent you've already done this, but I just wondered if there was any key message that you wanted our, would like our members to take home from this session today, um, from yeah. what is obviously an emerging area um, yep. and a changing area. I would do what I usually should do, and that's advocate. Um, we have to be aware that um, this is a, a condition like diabetes, obesity is the chronic game. It's not a short-term game. Um, we have to, whilst acknowledging that surgery is a, now a major component in the management, um, it's important that patients get a good understanding of what their options are and what the risk profile is. I wouldn't like to think any patient would have an operation in 2017 thinking that this is the operation I'm having because it's the only operation available. I think every patient needs to be aware of what we've discussed today, that there are a number of options with differing pluses and minuses um, and that they make their decision because they've been informed. The internet is a wonderful device, but it tends to be a tool for the very happy or very sad. Most of our outcomes are probably somewhere in the middle. The changing or evolving areas in this subspecialty are the very old, Jan, and the very young, meaning people over 70 um, are now considered eligible, whereas earlier it was just simply too high risk. And certainly the adolescent surgery is a huge corner we're about to turn. The other is with reference to the very big and the very small. I'll be honest that sometimes, like cancer surgery, Jan, people can actually be too overweight to be operated on. There is such a thing, I suspect, as um, you know, they will need palliative care rather than um, a cure because if someone presents to us, you know, many hundreds of kilograms um, with uh, end-stage diabetes and organ disease, potentially we have to acknowledge that we have to look after these people, palliate these people rather than sort them out. The management of the very heavy, as well as what I mentioned before, even the, the smaller BMIs become the newest topic because People are now saying, well, why do I have to wait till I'm hugely overweight? I'm already overweight. I've always struggled with my weight. I'm going to intervene sooner rather than later. So there's a number of different uh, gray zones, I like to call it, where um, this surgery is expanding to. And I think um, your members need to be aware, um, you know, that yes, I have sleeved a 14-year-old girl. Um, I have operated on 72-year-old men and I've operated on people with a BMI of only 31. Every surgeon should be able to justify why they're doing what they're doing, but the biggest growth area in this industry is some of these gray zones where previously no one would tread, now are starting to be looked into. And we must collect the evidence, um, be sensible with the evidence, and um, make sure the patients understand what is being offered and what is fair and reasonable. Thank you so much for your time once again. You've covered an enormous amount of information in a short time and I thank you for that. Um, and thank you for your time. I know you've been very busy on your first day back and, and thank you so much for your time. That's right.
I just want to also finish up by thanking not only yourself, but the members for, for your attention today. And I look forward to joining you all again soon for another podcast. So thank you very much.